Get Weak. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Rotating Reels podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Keegan Tran, calling in from Portland, Oregon. Joining me today, we have two of the usual suspects from Seattle, Washington, Hank Showalter. Me mania. <laughs> also calling in from Seattle, Washington, is Taylor May. Say hey, Taylor. No, I'm the real Taylor. It's me. You're an imposter. <laughs> and lastly, we have uh, an honor to welcome a special guest. You might recognize him as the curator of the Instagram account Letterbox Out of Content, or a little guest appearance that he made uh, a couple weeks ago on this show. Calling in from Turkey, we have Denise. Say hi. Hi, guys. I don't have a joke. Just happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and we forgot to prep him on the joke part. Sorry about that. <laughs> cool. Well, awesome. Super stoked to have you on the show today. Um, hope you don't have a, a horrible hour and you want to come back at some point for another guest appearance. No, I bet. I bet. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Sounds good. And then also, huge congrats. So when you came on the show last time, I think your your account had like a thousand followers. You're just past that. And you're like about to hit 12,000 today, right? Or like in the next few days? Yes, probably 12,000 tomorrow or the next day. Yeah, it's it's been steadily increasing and I'm I think yeah I'm happy I'm happy insane it's crazy that's only a period of a couple weeks I think so that's that's crazy growth Uh, cool all right well uh, before we get into any film topics I'll switch from shamelessly promoting our friends content to shamelessly promoting ours so I'll remind you guys again that uh, if you're listening to the show if you've been listening to the show over the past couple weeks you know that we have a patreon account at rotatingreels.com uh, we would absolutely love any support we could get over there we have some really good bonus t- content we have some really great patrons that have interacted with some of the content over there um, and just want to personally say thanks to the patrons we have over there I get to use my cut to subsidize my Apple TV Plus and Paramount Plus accounts. So huge thanks to, to those people for getting me uh, up to speed with Ted Lasso. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. Oh, man, I never even thought of that. It's five bucks I mean, a month. I have. We've talked about it. Yeah, but Apple TV Plus. I've been seeing the ads. They've been drawing me in. It's Hey, I'll say this now. Yeah. Yeah, I know your girlfriend's in school. Steal her account because they have a really good student discount. Because of Apple Music for five bucks a month. Ooh, yeah, I'll just steal her student ID as she sleeps. No one has to know. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Well, with that out of the way, I think we can actually talk about some movies. So we will uh, be talking about our feature movie this week, which is going to be Perfect Blue, directed by Satoshi Kone. Before we do that, we're going to update on some things that we've been watching over the past week. Uh, so, for people that are tuning in uh, for the first time, or maybe it's been a couple episodes, we have a rule now where you have three minutes to go over your what we've been watching. This just keeps it a little bit short, um, so we don't go over and kind of drone on about the things that we've been watching over the past week. Three minutes on the clock, and let me share my screen. With that rule set in place, Taylor, why don't you tell us what you've been watching over the past week? Yeah. Um, so first off, I watched A Quiet Place two, um, and I, I liked A Quiet Place one, uh, and I think A Quiet Place two is kind of continuing in the same vein. So you know, they're not they're not groundbreaking, incredible movies, but they're fun. They got a little uh, they got a little a little stick to them, um, and the acting's all great. The story's fun. The, it's obviously it makes a lot of use of sound, so you're constantly thinking about sound and the soundscape. Um, so I, I I liked it. I I think they're fun. Um, I also watched uh, Oslo. 
which is a story about the um, Oslo Accords, uh, part of the peace process um, that happened in the 90s between Israel and, pa and Palestine. Um, I, I was it was okay. I, I didn't like it as much, um, but it's still interesting kind of insight into this very non-standard international uh, diplomacy thing that happened. Um, and then next I watched uh, a couple episodes of an Israeli TV show on Netflix called Fauda. Um, I've heard it's like it was been really popular. Um, it's sort of like a cop drama, so I'm not really into cop dramas generally. So I watched it mostly just to see what types of TV are popular in other countries that are, you know not the United States. Um, but I don't think it wasn't for me, just for the the plot. Um, but because you know we have a we have a guest and. Uh, I had wanted to watch another Netflix TV show sort of in that same vein, um, but a Turkish one uh, called uh, Resurrection, and I'm going to butcher this, Ertugrul, I think. Um, I've heard it's I've heard it's like a wildly popular like pop TV show kind of thing, so I haven't watched that yet, but it's on my list, kind of a, another, another show like uh, Fauda, which is just a show popular in other parts of the world being produced by Netflix. Um, so other than that, I uh, I watched I started rewatching Gary Girls because uh, after watching our our feature film this week, I was a little depressed and I needed something <laughs> silly to get that taste out of my mouth. So I watched Gary Girls a little bit, <laughs> and that's it. Nice, hey, uh, Taylor. I actually just got back from a family trip, and one of my little cousins, uh, we were coming through Netflix and past Dairy Girls, and they were like. Doesn't someone on your show watch Dairy Girls? So I thought of you. Thought to text you, but. <laughs> It's I can't I still can't understand half of what the characters are saying, but it's hysterical. It's just it's just a comedy errors nonstop. So and that's that's Irish. Highly right? recommend. Yeah, yeah, Northern Irish. Nice, nice, nice. Cool. Sounds like a pretty good week. Uh, Hank, what did you uh, what you get up to over the past week? Yeah, I've had kind of a light watch week. Um, I do most of my watching with my girlfriend Haley, but she's been preparing for some exams coming up, so I've been like. Uh, you know, I could watch something on my own or I could get some extra video game time. Anyway, all that is to say I have some video games to staple on the end. But I did watch a couple things this week. Um, I've been watching a series that's currently airing for the first time in the U.S., uh, Wellington Paranormal. I mentioned it last week. Uh, just a new episode dropped this week. Um, it's fantastic. It's uh, Like I said last week, it's from the makers of What We Do in the Shadows. Totally the same sort of vibe, just kind of a know a different set of characters a different set of problems i've loved every second of it i've actually watched the first two episodes like three times each now um just because i got so upset that there was not already more out to watch <laughs> anyway wellington paranormal fantastic besides that uh we've been kind of in the background watching through um the latest two seasons of american ninja warrior <laughs> which is just i mentioned it last week but it's still just such an absurd display of like the limits of the human body like these people can just do so many pull-ups like I, I i can do a couple pull-ups but these people they're doing pull-ups they're jumping from pull-up to pull-up you know they're they're like doing pull-ups where they then like slide down a thing it's just I, I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't uh, talk on it too long. It's just if you like pull-ups, it's entertaining. Um, <laughs> anyway, and then besides that, I've had some video games because, like I mentioned, my TV time's been kind of replaced by video game time this week. So, uh, of course, I have to mention uh, I'm playing Yakuza Three now. Um, 
Y'all, if you've been listening for a while, you know that I played seven, zero, one, and two. I'm on three now. Three's pretty fun. Um, it's actually kind of a throwback in the series because uh, three was originally produced in like 2009. Um, and the other ones uh, that came before it have all been remade in 2016 through 2018. So they're very modern. And three is very classic. So it's been kind of like a trip to the past, but it's aged actually really well in my opinion. I like it a lot. And then besides that, the last thing I want to touch on, I've been playing on this brand new game that just came out of the um, resurrected corpse of Microprose. Um, it's called High Fleet, and it's really weird. It's a like a strategy uh, role-playing uh, like dog fighting simulator uh, where you're playing like uh, a fleet commander from kind of this uh, like Russian imperial like diesel punk state that is doing like a military campaign in a in a desert country that's rebelling against the empire, and the game just has way too much going on on in it to touch on in in this podcast. But it's the first game in the decade that I have needed to read the manual because I played through the tutorial and I was like, I still do not know what about half these buttons do and there's no <laughs> tool tips and anyway it's right up my alley as anyone that knows me can attest they're like hank's always talking about this shit um so anyway if you like games that really don't want you to play them um high fleet is great <laughs> and that's my week man cool well always good to get some uh, some game content in what was i guess so yakuza 3 was that originally playstation 3 yeah, originally PlayStation 3. I'm playing it on PlayStation 4. Gotcha. And that's part of the remaster pack you had? Yeah. Gotcha. Nice. Cool, cool. Well, Denise, what uh, what have you been getting up to over the past week? Okay, so uh, TV show-wise, I've been uh, binge-watching uh, New Girl. It's addictive. I mean... Nice. Uh, in those kind of shows, you don't really want to get into the whole, oh, is there a character arc? Oh, is there good, I don't know, directing? It's just addictive. <laughs> I know the characters are funny. I mean, all the relationships you want, okay, let me just hope this happens. I mean, it's, it's just fun to watch in general. So I've been binge-watching that. Uh, if I want to put on the more, you know, cinephile hat, uh, I've watched Blade Runner 2049 for the first time. That was, I know, it was a five-star movie for me. And and very hot take. I think it was better than the first one. I know this is, a lot of people would disagree. Ooh. Yeah, I know. You're going to start a fight yeah, with that. so <laughs> just putting that out there, I think this one's better. I don't know. I'd, I'd love anything Villeneuve puts out. He's just a mastermind in my head, so... Anyway, I watched that. That was amazing. The colors were amazing. The acting was amazing. The sound design, everything. Uh, before that, I watched the Plant of the Apes trilogy. The, the new one, I think, that came out like 10 years ago. And that was one of, I, I can say, maybe one of my favorite trilogies. I've decided it's, it's what an action trilogy should be. I mean, you watch it. It's very fun. The CGI is amazing, the monkeys look real. Sorry, chimpanzees, they'd, they'd be mad if they heard that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I love those. I think the main character, anyone who's watched it, Caesar, this little ape that turns into a vicious leader, his character development is amazing. So definitely recommend that trilogy. 
Uh, before that, I watched uh, probably the biggest masterpiece of the last hundred years, Space Jam, A New Legacy. I watched that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun, I guess. I know it was, it kind of, you, you shouldn't really analyze a kind of movie like that, but it just didn't know what it wanted to be. I mean, if it was for kids, What's all those, you know, references about? I mean, there's references to Training Day and King Kong, and kids don't know that. And then you're using kids' characters, but these days kids don't watch Looney Tunes anymore, as far as I know, at least. I mean, do they? I don't know. I mean, so it was very here and there. It didn't know what it wanted to be. Uh, before that, I watched First Cow, A24's, oh, what, it came out two years ago, or a year ago, I'm not sure. Uh, I think it was a bit, it was good, it was a bit, it dragged at times, I think it should have been shorter than it was, but it, it was a tragic story and it, the simple way that they show the story kind of hits home, so that was a fun movie, not a fun movie, but at least a good movie. And I watched Superbad, and that's just amazing, no need to touch on that much, and that was my week. <laughs> Man, busy, busy week. Space Jam almost tore our show apart last week. We almost decided to just disband after having to, to do analysis of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we dove into it. I know you said you're not supposed to, but we did. We analyzed every bit. Taylor had follow-up yeah, questions. No, I... He was messaging us in our group chat about how he was still thinking about that movie, which I think is the exact opposite intended effect. <laughs> yeah, I'm no, still mad about it. I watched Space Jam, and I was like... What kind of a world do we live in where someone is allowed to produce a movie like this? Just a movie that has such a profound disrespect for the viewer. It's like, hey, so you guys don't really like commercials, right? How about two and a half hours of them with jokes that fall flat? No, it's really like, you guys don't like yourselves, do you? you, 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 you. Uh, we've, we've shit on it enough, though. We've, yeah, we should probably yeah. should not linger sorry, too much. Sorry, sorry, enough, sorry. Fair enough. Just to add one more thing, I mean, I watched it in a theater with my friend, and we were both, like, 19 years old. And then we walk into the theater, <laughs> and there's, like, five-year-olds sitting next to us. And we were the oldest one there, if you don't count parents. And it was embarrassing. And we were like, why are we here? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they got a lot out of the Clockwork Orange references? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, I had a similar experience when I saw The Conjuring 2. I was the oldest person in the theater by probably a decade. Um, though at that point, I think it was a bit less embarrassing for me than for the parents that allowed their children. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Last thing I want to touch on in your watch list, but unless Hank or Taylor want to say otherwise, I'm happy to have the official rotating reel stance that 2049 is a better movie than the original. And the original Blade Runner is probably, it's my favorite movie of all time. Like, I love it. I have a lot of personal connection. But I think if you were to, like, go forward 300 years and give someone that had never seen either one just fresh with, like, no context or nostalgia, I think most people would come away with the second one. I mean, you got Roger Deakins, right, Villeneuve, like you said. It's it just so, so good. And uh, not that the original isn't great, but I think there seems to be, like, a cohesion in the production of the second one that just didn't exist in the 80s with the, with the first one. So I love that movie. Do you have... I've actually not seen either. I've read the the original what? story by Dick, but I haven't seen either of the films. Oh my goodness! Wow. So what? 
we can't have the official stance yet. All right. It's Hank, not allowed. Uh, Hank, no, actually, this is this is relevant for uh, our feature review today because the original, like, I, I agree that I enjoy watching the new Blade Runner more, but the original is, like, an important piece of cinema history. And that's how I kind of feel about, about the movie we're about to review right now, that, like, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to ever rewatch this. I don't think I'm going to, like, you, you know, recommend it to all of my friends, but I can admit that it's important in the development of, of cinema and anime and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Just like the original Blade Runner. Fair enough. Very metered approach. I appreciate that. <laughs> Cool. So yeah, sorry to shoot you down, Keegan. I know, I tried but, to get uh, it in there, but you know what? Whatever. I'll get you guys at a later point. Uh, all right, cool. I think I'm the last one to go, but I have a fairly late week. Um, so just the first thing I watched was uh, Netflix's new movie, <clears throat> excuse me, Blood Red Sky. Uh, this is basically like snakes on a plane, but with vampires. Uh, it's a German movie, so it's pretty. It's pretty out there. Uh, it's a. It's a lot more like serious because it's European. I think like a, an American production would be a little more like slapsticky with it. Uh, it's pretty gross, um, and it, it reminded me that when I was a kid, like Salem's Lot and Nosferatu really freaked me out. Like the the practical effects for the vampires are pretty horrifying. Uh, but it's wrapped up in a movie that's just pretty okay and is like unfortunately hinged on a child actor, which is never a great idea but by any means. So it's definitely worth a watch, right? If you have Netflix, it's essentially free for you to check out. I think it's only like, uh, like it's an hour 40. So it's definitely not like a huge commitment oh. at all. Um, and, you know, just purely based on the fact that they're keeping special effects like in the practical realm is really nice to, to see. So that's a soft recommend, I guess. Um, I won't go in this one for too long because it's very political, uh, but we watched a movie called uh, Unplanned. Uh, I have this this uh, kind of inside joke with my cousins when I visit that we watch really, really poor quality Christian movies, uh, just ironically. So we watch Unplanned, which is a, a retelling of a Planned Parenthood director who supposedly saw a kind of scary operation and decided to leave. Um, but it's pretty silly, and I'm not going to say anything else about it, except for at the very last minute, Avenger style, <clears throat> Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, makes a special cameo unprompted. <sighs> and I was oh my God. on the floor. It is... This thing's <laughs> a spectacle, man. Maybe maybe we could Patreon it, but this is one of the weirder things I've ever watched. <laughs> Uh, I also watched Soderbergh's new movie, No Sudden Move, which is on HBO Max. Uh, he's back to, uh, supposedly he's retired, but he's back to doing like heist uh, gangster movies. And this is pretty fun. I don't think, I think he overcomplicates the story a lot. Um, I think I paid decent amount of attention and I was still pretty lost. There's a lot of players in the game that don't necessarily need to be there. But I think Soderbergh's at a point in his career where he's like kind of cranky. He's kind of disillusioned, right? He made Unsane on an iPhone 7. And he shot this movie with a period-correct 35-millimeter lens so from the 1950s. And it's crazy. I mean, it looks like he filmed it with a GoPro from the 1950s. It's crazy fish-eyed. You have people walk to the edge of frame, and they start distorting. And there's, like, vignetting around the lens, too. <clears throat> it's a super weird effect. Weird. He decides to keep all of it in. Um, so, I mean, even for, like, the just seeing a 1950s period movie set in Detroit with an accurate camera is really cool on its own. And again, you know, if you have HBO, this is available for you to check out whenever. So uh, it's a little complex, but you get a huge cast. Brandon Fraser's back, Don Cheadle, a bunch of cool people. So I enjoyed it. I don't think it's, it's great by any means, but it's a fun experiment. And then the last thing I watched was I saw Shyamalan's Old. Uh, 
this guy, I don't want to say washed up, but uh, he should not be writing his own work anymore, for sure. <laughs> Shyamalan is like a great visual storyteller. I think he actually has a really good eye for shooting thrillers in a way that's like fun and exciting. Um, and I think he has the name to throw around to still get a decently sized budget. Maybe not like Six Sense signs early career money, but he's still fairly respected in the industry, I think. <laughs> But this idiot just absolutely, I mean, it's like he came in and wrote it with crayon, right? And I saw this tweet, and it was like, 55% of this movie is a child walking up to someone and saying, what's your name and occupation? And it's true. It doesn't make sense. I watched the whole thing through, and it's, it doesn't aid the story at all. But uh, again, Shyamalan knows how to shoot people. He knows how to shoot suspense and thrillers. Uh, so this is like a heavy, heavy weight for streaming. Um and there's some some gross out scares. I think there's some some heavy Jinji Ito inspiration in the later half once it goes mm. absolute like balls to the walls insanity. But the story is just absolutely ridiculous. Do not go in hoping you're going to get any kind of like satisfying narrative arc at all. But hey, it's a uh, you know at least we got someone out there making goofy wacky kind of original ideas and are based on a new thing. So I can respect that. Which uh, which Shamla film would you compare it to? Like, are we talking like it's like a village, or it's like the one with Mark Wahlberg? It's written like The Happening, so it's it's the oh, same no. tier of script, but it's like Lady in the Water kind of surrealism. So it's it's a weird okay. mix. I think there's <clears throat> I think there's fans of those movies, maybe. So if you like, the, I'm a fan of Lady in the Water. I am too. Yeah, me too. I agree. I agree. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, Lady in the Water has some the fun elements of being like a quote unquote kids movie, and I, there's there's enough surrealism to make it more fun. Whereas this is just kind of, it still wants you to believe in the premise a little bit. So, uh, yeah. Again, just wait for this one. Uh, I'm so that makes me so sad. When you texted us that and said don't watch this, I was like, oh man, I'm uh, always I'm always waiting for Samala to come back and another Sixth Sense to hit. You know, yep. exactly. I'm always like, this dude produced Sixth Sense and Signs. Like I'm just so primed to like something he's done. Yeah. And I see I I, I see like so many of his movies except the one that shall not be named. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, Every time I'm like, wow, it's it's like pretty well shot. He actually got decent performances out of the actors and then just completely dropped the ball and actually turning that into a movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know we're running a little long, but out of yeah. personal curiosity, what do you guys think is the last good Shyamalan movie? Denise? Denise? Oh. <sighs> the whole you know the last what's it called G glass the third one in that trilogy unbreakable splitting then glass yep. mm -hmm. and it wasn't bad i i think split was better and of course unbreakable <coughs> is better than split so it goes down over the years but i think <coughs> he hasn't been good in a while i don't know i mean not to yeah. roast the guy he's he probably uh I don't know. I mean, Glass was a bit goofy. I, I mean, I, I understand it's supposed to be a yeah. comic book kind of adaptation and the guy in it is planning it like a comic book. It's just, I mean, I watched it a few years back and I didn't know much about movies and I still kind of find, found it kind of trying too hard to be goofy instead of being goofy, if that makes <laughs> sense. So, I don't know. I, I yeah. don't have the answer to this. I'll leave it to you guys. <laughs> I uh, 
Oh. Yeah, no, go, go ahead, ahead fuck you, Taylor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I was just going to say, um, I saw Glass, you know, it was kind of kind of a good time. Like, it wasn't terrible. There were fun people to watch in it. It had, had uh, Samuel L. Jackson. And I, I like anything he's in. Um, but I don't think it was, like, a good movie. Um, I'm tempted to say The Village for me. Um, because oh, wow. it, it, like I think he kind of mangled it on the delivery, but there are enough good parts there that I was still like pretty thoroughly invested until the very end of the village. So like, I know it, it, it's kind of weird because I'm tempted to say it's actually not that good of a movie, but I was also just so thoroughly like enraptured for most of it that I have mm-hmm. a hard time saying it's a bad movie. So I have, I, have to, I have to say At the Village, if not, like, one movie earlier and being the six, or, uh, Signs. Fair enough. <laughs> Taylor. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I know I know M. Night uh, is a listener of the show, so, you know, <laughs> trying, to, trying, trying to be uh, uh, generous for him. But I think it's probably The Village, 2004. I... I, I the you know the sixth sense and signs are great movies i i I love those movies if i was a director i would be very very proud of my career just to have done those and lady in the water i watched and it was it was like "Eh." and then the happening can only be viewed charitably as a comedy that's if you watch that and just assume that the entire thing was done tongue-in-cheek that there's no way this is serious then it's a great movie then it's hysterical but (laughs) after that there's just like the last airbender there's no defending that that's just all the way down the toilet from the first shot but i will say i'm looking at his uh filmography right now i haven't seen some of these recent films i haven't seen after earth which got has will smith in it poorly reviewed but i haven't seen it and i also haven't seen the visit which is I guess like a comedy. So there's some of his yeah. other stuff recently. <coughs> excuse me, that I, I haven't seen. So maybe I'll try some of those. But I I think I'm gonna watch old. It's been hyped up so much, and the, I already know the premise, and it sounds a little bit interesting. So yeah, and it's got the kid from Hereditary. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Look, I've prepped you guys enough, yeah. right? Like, if you still have the yeah. uh, slightest amount of interest, you're gonna get some fun out of it. It's not an, like an entirely joyless movie, but I just think like. I always have this expectation going into the next Shyamalan movie that this is going to be the one, right? I'm going to be like, I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to, this little guy, he's going to be my friend <laughs> yeah. again. And it's just, it's never the one. But I will say, if I had to pick like a modern one, I think Split's actually, Split's a really fun movie. And I think the reason for that is because you have like two tentpole actors that could just completely hold it up. It's Anya Taylor-Joy and I'm forgetting, what's the guy who played Professor X? James, I mean, he's amazing, right? They're both... They're so good. And I think, like, if you could just, like, push Shyamalan out of the way and, and get him off the director's chair long enough, you know, throw candy the other way and distract him, you can let those two just kind of work <laughs> and, and hold the movie up on their own merits. So I think he'll do it. I think I think it may, it may be 20 years from now, but there's going to be another M. Night Shyamalan banger, and everyone's going to be like, he's back, he's back, he did it. I will say... Yeah. Before moving on, my, my uncle was sitting next to me during the movie, and he leaned over and he goes, "This fucking sucks. He should have made a seven cents, eight cents, nine cents." <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Cool. All, All right. right, let's get into Perfect Blue, though. I know. This has been great, but we have actually an entirely other movie that we have to talk about. And that's a movie that I recommended, guys. Feels <laughs> like it's been a while since we had a Keegan week. I think last time we did Ghost in the Shell, so just doing 90s anime in general. Uh, but yeah, so this is a B week where I got to pick, and I chose Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue from 1997. Let me pull up the uh, synopsis here really quickly. Uh, so a pop singer gives up her career to become an actress, but she slowly goes insane when she starts being stalked by an obsessed fan and what seems to be a ghost of her past. This is a uh, this is a pretty uh, out there movie. I think if you guys are like familiar with Satoshi Kon's work, he did Paranoia Agent, an anime series, Millennium Actress. Uh, one of his most modern works is Paprika, which is how I got introduced to it when I was a little bit younger. But I think when people look back at his filmography, this is one of the ones that really stands out um, as being a career definer for him. And I think the one of the titles that has the, the most lasting impact as well. Um, I have like a huge love and adoration for this movie. I watched it about a year, year and a half ago, so it's still relatively new to me. But uh, let me pass this off to someone else. Denise, I think this is uh, my three co-hosts' first time watching it. So Denise, how'd you feel about this movie, checking it out for the first time? Okay, so uh, I watched it like half an hour ago. I mean, this was the first time I watched it. I wanted to come into this podcast with it still fresh in my mind. And I loved it. I think it was amazing. I think it was probably revolutionary for its time. And people give a lot of credit to Black Swan for doing the same thing. And it's just, um, why is this not talked about enough then? when you look at it. I mean, it's the same kind of semi-concept. It's similar in that sense, where kind of reality merges with uh, kind of, we don't know what's real and what's not, that kind of thing. And I just loved it. I think the way he directed it was amazing. The whole, you guys would understand when I say the transitions, the kind of callbacks to previous scenes. If that makes sense. We're doing non-spoilery at this point, aren't we? So I'm trying to keep it as <laughs> d- d- general as possible. But yeah, I think t- in a technical, on a technical standpoint, it's a perfect film. And the plot itself, I think, manages to convey what it tries to convey. And what it manages to convey is you don't know what you're watching. And I think it managed that because you really have to kind of... I guess I'll watch it again this week because... I mean, I, I have to look at this from another perspective. And I don't know, I just, I just loved it. It was, I usually don't like this, uh, the whole uh, what's real, what's not, because it can get cheesy and it can be a way out. You know, ah, oh, it was all a dream, or ah, oh, it, was, it wasn't actually real, he was just imagining it. And that can get kind of like, what's it called? Uh, uh, Deus Ex Machina in a movie. So, did I say that correct? I think that's a fancy term. I think I used that correctly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Perfect. Thank you. Uh, and so, it wasn't like that. It was actually, I mean, the whole merging of reality and the dream-like state actually helped the movie because that's what it's about. And I know, five out of five for me. Sweet. I'm glad you liked it a lot. And like you said, yeah, I think the whole reality thing could definitely be lazy screenwriting. But, man, this guy had a hang on how to use the, the device really, really well. Uh, all right. I think I think Taylor went first. So, Hank, how are you, how are you feeling about this movie? 
Yeah, so, I mean, right off the cuff, loved this movie. You know, this movie, it's got it all. It's got surrealism, fantastic art, human suffering. Like, what more could you want from a piece of cinema? Um, but uh, that said, I actually have, like, a little bit of background with this movie. Uh, there was a period in my life, like, a couple, like, I hadn't seen it before, to be clear, just prefacing with that. But there was a period in my life where I was watching some of uh, what I call, like, the, uh, the edgy adult anime like classics um where i was watching like you know akira uh evangelion elf and lead um you know stuff like that you know some of the like the old 90s stuff uh back before all anime just seemed to turn into like young men's anime um that you know maybe that's not a blanket statement but i feel like all the modern anime i see is is, is aimed at a younger audience and uh I, I was going through that and this movie was like one of the movies that was recommended to me during that time period i was like all right it's going on the watch list um and then i saw akira which i really liked um but i, I watched it with a bunch of people and at the end of akira everyone was like wow i don't know like what the fuck was going on there and i was like I feel like it wasn't that confusing, you know? Like, like I think it was a really good movie, but, you know, like, if you were going in there for, like, the mindfuck aspect, it really just wasn't there for me. Like, I, I think it was a good story. Um, but anyway, this movie, like, the guy that recommended it to me, he's, like, the whole thing he was selling was, like, this is kind of a mindfucky movie. And after seeing Akira, I was, like, I'm, it, was, it was recommended by the same guy, and I was, like, I don't believe you. <laughs> um, and so anyway it just kind of got bumped down the watch list and i'd still like wanted to watch it because you know i was interested in it but i i wasn't that drawn in because the main appeal that had been sold to me was something that i didn't believe i was going to get so i finally watched it at keegan's you know recommendation and uh i'm, I'm just going to say i think this is in anime if not in film like maybe the most successful mind fucking that i've gotten in a movie um there weren't any parts where I felt like it was mindfucky just because, you know, they did something that didn't make sense and expected us to suspend our disbelief. Um, I felt like it was all pretty thoroughly well plotted. Um, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but I think they, they really pulled that off. The animation is, of course, you know, kind of classic 90s. It looked to me like it was like all like pre like CG anime stuff, like it looked all traditionally animated, which I'm always into. Um, the the character art had a pretty distinct look to it um not everyone was like these like beautiful anime characters they had like wide set eyes and there were people of kind of varying builds in the movie you know often in anime everyone's kind of like lean and they look like they're all the same height and this movie you'd had scenes where there were you know people that were like lean and fat and tall and short like all in the same frame really cool stuff enjoyed the soundtrack a lot um a little bit reminiscent of Ghost in the Shell for me, which I also loved the soundtrack for. Um, and unlike Ghost in the Shell, I managed to find Japanese, uh, the Japanese with English subtitles rather than an atrocious English dub. <laughs> um, so that made me very happy because I like to hear the Japanese, the English dubs, especially in the 90s. It's just like, cut it out, guys. You're making work that shouldn't be work, you know? Um, so yeah, anyway, loved it. Sweet. I'm so stoked. I feel like, like I, I say this every week, but I, I think I got Hank pegged. I think I got, well, I shouldn't say it like that. I think I got Hank's taste figured out. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, last but not least, man, how'd you feel about the movie? 
you guys spoil me because I'm I'm not a huge anime fan. I'm not. This is the kind of film I'm not gonna search out on my own and go watch. Um, and so I have I have such a, a high opinion of anime only because I've only watched the good stuff. <laughs> you guys send me like, oh, these are some of the most important, greatest anime films of all time. So those are the ones I watch. So that's kind of my whole perception of anime is this kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, exactly. I just echo what you guys said incredibly surreal movie the the cinematography i don't know if that's the right way to to frame it but the the framing of the shots um <clears throat> the way that they misdirect you constantly there you know you're there's a, a scene happens and you're expecting uh, an ambulance in the next scene and then it cuts and you see the that looks like the ambulance lights but then it zooms out and it's really just a little kid's toy and reflections and cutting from the reflections to that becomes the main focus shot it's just a misdirect the entire time totally unpredictable i had no clue what was going to happen at all um i so yeah definitely a, a piece of art i kind of i kind of think of these anime movies like akira i think of in the same vein as like i'm visiting an art gallery for a, a style of art that i'm not really a huge fan of but i appreciate the importance of it i appreciate all the skill that went behind it um, so yeah, I got, I got done with this and, uh, I said, well, just like with the curious of the movies, I was like, I don't know what that was, but it, it was, it was a piece of art that I is now in my brain. Um, <laughs> so yeah, if that, if that's the kind of mood you're in, I would definitely recommend you watch this movie. Um, it's, it's definitely a, a, a thinker that'll kind of disassociate you from whatever else is going on in your life. Nice. Cool. So it seems like pretty, uh, pretty glowing reviews all around. Get my thoughts in pretty quick. I, I don't think we're going to stay in non-spoilers very long. I don't think there's a whole lot more we can discuss that hasn't been said. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I, I found this movie about a year, year and a half ago, when uh, obviously I did not used to be a Japanese pop idol, but similarly to the main character, I was in like a little bit of a burnout stage in my career, where I was long hours, just very kind of disassociated from the like other non-work parts of my career. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's a really interesting angle that gets explored by this movie. That's obviously the main thread is being like a young working professional, not really knowing where your career's headed, having a lot of insecurity about your career and, and kind of the, the mania that can come out of that. But I also think there's some fun stuff that gets explored that is still super relevant, right? Like, you know, idol culture in general, as, you know, South Korean pop makes its way more and more into the uh, international market, right? We see a lot of crazy fandoms online, and it's not, it's increasingly more believable that things like this and the things that we see later in the movie could really happen in the real world uh, to people that are just as mentally fragile as the main character in this movie. But can't go too much more into that. I absolutely adore this movie through and through um, and I think it's just as scary watching it the second time around um, so this is only my second watch but I do feel like Denise what you were saying earlier I think the second watch is really when you start piecing stuff together um, so I think I have a pretty good idea of where the, the plot ended up um, but maybe we can get into that in the end uh, and I don't think I have too much else to say non-spoiler Any anyone else have any final thoughts? Keegan, I love that you identified with the main character. <laughs> That's just hilarious in this movie to me. You're like, yeah, I, I, I am tired of wearing these these mini dresses these and being on stage skirts. in front of all these all these ogling men. I'm am tired of following up Power Rangers performances on stage. <laughs> I, uh, I I do some moonlighting that you guys don't know about, but <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Any any other well, final thoughts? Are we we good to move this thing into spoilers? 
I'm like on the knife's edge of spoiling this already. I feel like, you know, let's just okay. let's get uh, there. One last thing I have to add. I intentionally didn't read or watch any, you know, perfect blue explanation on, you know, Wikipedia, I don't know, some film analysis YouTube video. And I usually do with these movies, but I intentionally didn't watch it to see how you guys thought, how it ended, how it started, because I'm still a bit unclear. So you guys will teach me what, how the movie ended, basically. That is, this would be a first. I, I won't. I'm still unclear. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> if we have taught anyone anything in film, I would be shocked. So maybe we can, maybe we can turn the side here a little bit. <laughs> cool. All right, let's move this thing into spoilers, and I think the hosts are gonna go take a five-minute pee break. All right, guys. So we are now fully in spoiler area. We can talk about everything, and I think. Because this is more of a plot-heavy movie, uh, you know, we've got our conversations about the general themes and the technicalities out of the way. Uh, let's talk a little bit of story. Um, and I just want to say right off the bat, you know, I'm going to spoil this pretty big, but in a movie this depressing, and I think Hank is apt to recommend movies that are in this kind of general depressing realm, I, I love a happy ending, man. I know I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but uh, it makes you feel a little bit better and like I'll rewatch this movie thinking that it has kind of a nice bow on it. But again, I think that's also kind of up for interpretation. So how did you guys feel about this movie flowing through the threads of, you know, the mental breakdown? Um, and, you know, Denise, I know you talked a little bit about the, the cutting around of feeling a little like jumpy um, between like different sequences. So uh, I don't know, whoever wants to open it up, I know probably a lot of thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll open it up. Yeah, so the the plotting of this movie was really impressive to me. Um, because first of all, like, by the time I got to the end, I didn't feel like they had made any impossible leaps in terms of what had happened. A lot of these movies, I feel like they just kind of shove something in at the end. There's like, and here's all these things you never could have known. And that's really dissatisfying because you're like, okay, then why did I watch the previous, you know, hour and a half? Um, and this movie didn't do that at all. I feel like, you know, they were laying breadcrumbs and then they, you know, kind of gathered them back into a loaf of plot at the end. Um, and that was really cool. But what was also really impressive to me is when I'm watching these movies, I'm always kind of spinning the gears, trying to figure out like what's actually going on. Like there's what we're being shown. And, uh, a lot of the times I figure it out. I'm not like a genius. I don't figure it out every time. But I feel pretty confident in my ability to at least get something close a lot of the time. And in this movie, I went through, I think, like three distinct phases of what I thought was really going on with Mima. Um, and none of them were right. But all of them, like, I felt, like, very convinced of during the times. And I'm going to walk you through them right now. Um, so the first one, I thought... Um, was, you know, Mima was, you know, being stalked by Mr. Mimania. Um, and uh, I was thinking, like, okay, like, he's doing bad things. And she is convincing herself that it is her doing those bad things. And that's kind of, like, the <clears throat> crux of this. Like, she's kind of, like, assuming his guilt. Um, and, and, and to be fair, that, that was, like, part of what was going on. But then from there, I kind of moved into a stage where I was thinking, okay, Mr. Me Mania, maybe he's not even real. 
maybe like she actually is doing these things and he's like a person you know they're talking about personas throughout the movie maybe he's a persona that she's constructed so when we're seeing him that's really her like going out into the world in a completely dissociated state um and you know again that you know wasn't really quite right with you know what we were shown at the end but you know i was very convinced of it for a bit um and then there was a time where i was thinking like okay you know maybe they're both real and like she's you know seeing these things happening that he's doing assuming the guilt but then also starting to do things on her own while in the dissociated state um and again not right but i like felt fairly convinced by the evidence we were seeing like we saw him do a couple things specifically we saw her like find like bloodied clothes after one of the people was killed um so like i felt like there was evidence there to support like each one of those as i was going through it and then by the end of the movie we find out that it was a we're in spoilers so i can say it we find out that it was uh the roomy her manager who was kind of orchestrating this whole thing. Like, she was talking to uh, Mr. Mimania, kind of, like, giving him instructions, and she was also kind of, I think, massaging Mima's mental state to be kind of, like, more, like, amenable to that. And that didn't break down anything we had seen already. Like, that made sense. We'd seen Mr. Mimania receiving emails, and at the time I was like, he's either imagining this or... Mima is sending him these emails in a dissociated state and not remembering it. But it totally makes sense that Rumi could have done that. She, like, knows plenty about Mima to, like, have done that. Um, we were given breadcrumbs about why Rumi would do it very early on when, like, she was, like, talking about, like, well, when I was an idol and someone was like, well, something, well, things have really changed since you were an idol. So, like, we were given, like, a little bit of motive, you know, like, she was kind of living vicariously and didn't like the way things were changing. Anyway, I thought it just all came together beautifully. And I really like a movie that can change what you think is happening multiple times throughout and still coalesce into something, like, that seems internally consistent and is kind of like satisfying to see the payoff. Yeah, nice. Like it plays by its own rules, right? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. That's important to me. I'm like, the rules don't need to be the rules of the real world, but just have a couple, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. <clears throat> I kind of like I don't want to say I give up but with these anime films like when they start I'm like I'm not even gonna try I'm not even gonna try to like predict what's gonna happen because even though it seems like oh you know they're just telegraphing that this guy is the stalker he's the source of the bad stuff he's creepy looking and right off the bat I'm like "Eh, eh, maybe I don't I don't think that's where this is gonna go though and so I don't I don't even I don't even try I just kind of let it wash over me because it's so it's sort of like I kind of think of it like like I talked about in a gallery like visiting a gallery earlier it's sort of like like for me visiting like a post-impressionist gallery like Van Gogh or Cezanne where this isn't like my favorite kind of art but I appreciate that there's a lot of crazy stuff happening so I'm just going to let it wash over me and just take in whatever these artists are trying to express so like yeah I had thoughts about where the plot was going and everything else but I just knew there was so much misdirection that I just I just need to like let all of this just kind of fill fill me in and get lost in whatever is is going on on screen. Do you, I guess do you feel like by the end of it you had a, a pretty good grasp on where things had landed, or do you think there was it's still a little bit of a, a wash in your head? 
I have no clue. I don't even know if Rumi. I, have, I don't even know if Rumi was real. Like that. That. That's where I'm at. Like, yeah, I can see that things worked out in the end, and Rumi was the bad. Th- I, no, I don't even know. I. I don't even know. And the. The one. The one plot device that I really kind of latched onto because I thought it was so prescient was the use of the internet, and. <clears throat> When this came out, you know, we have this great scene where the main character is learning to use the internet, and I remember that. I remember when I was a kid, and people were had no idea how to go to a web browser or type in URLs or any of that stuff, and you see this creepiness that comes, and she goes, well, this isn't me, this isn't really me, and that was, I think, for most people when this film came out, not something they were thinking about, not worried about impersonations on the internet or whatever else, and now, obviously, it's become a huge thing in a lot of people's minds minds and this movie kind of saw that coming from a mile away so that was like the one plot device that i really wanted to just see how is this portrayed back in 97 or you know the 90s when this was produced but otherwise you know in terms of like the big moving plot elements i was like nah i can't i can't let myself get too convinced of any story right now because it could <laughs> you know there could be the scene where they tie the bow at the very end and you're like oh she made it it was just roomy she was crazy and drove this lady crazy and then i could expect another scene where it's like this was all all a made-up thing in this stalker guy's head, and this pop idol's not even real. Like I was ready for that at any moment, so I couldn't get too invested in any of any of the major plot things. Yeah, very fair. Don't want to get too lost in the sauce. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, one thing I I want to talk about, like the internet thing specifically. Um, one thing you were bringing up, Taylor, like the the like you know like impersonation on the internet, how like that wasn't really a thing at the time, but they saw it coming from a mile away. One thing I also really liked about that is whenever you see shit from, you know, the early 2000s, the late 90s, talking about, like, you know, kind of the dangers of the internet, um, it's always like, or at least in my experience, it's always like that 14-year-old girl you're talking to is really a 40-year-old man, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was, like, kind of more interesting to see, like, someone seeing someone impersonating themselves. Um, and, and obviously there was a little bit of like, yeah, that pop idol is really a creepy man. Um, like there, there was a little bit of that, but it was like much more interesting to not see someone like being catfish, but to see their identity just being like taken from them by, because like the, what was in the public eye was just being written by someone else. Um, I think it was just a really interesting angle on it. And I would say potentially even more of like a dangerous angle than getting catfished. Because, uh, you, you know, if someone's catfishing you, you know, you can, you can just cease communication. Like, people obviously don't for, for various reasons. But if someone's impersonating you, you can't really just stop engaging with that. That's not an option. You know, your identity has been stolen and, like, what they're saying will continue to affect you. Because even if you don't engage with it, other people can. So anyway, really, really uh, kind of an interesting use of it. And I think honestly like kind of like a more developed use of like internet dangers than we see in even like a lot of modern works that's like you know catfishing or like do you spend too much time on social media i don't know yeah 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 i know i I totally get what you're saying yeah yeah huge amount of foresight denise i know you had said earlier that like you were you had your ideas of what had happened you were hoping to get it cleared up do you feel like you have a a handle on on how this flowed (laughs) A bit. I mean, uh, I get how at the end Rumi was the bad guy after all. She orchestrated the whole thing. But I think the movie intentionally does leave a touch of ambiguity because 
Rumi couldn't have orchestrated the whole thing. I mean, that stalker guy had to have existed to see, for example, uh, how I mean how Mima steps out, steps off the train, for example. I mean, Rumi is not around for those things. There's still a very creepy stalker guy, and he exists. I mean, and in my opinion, at least, he exists because, uh, I mean, we kind of see the whole Mima is haunted by that guy. One minute he's there, one minute he's not. But in my opinion, at least, I kind of uh, reason that with how fucked up Mima is in the head at that point and not that that guy isn't real. I think he is. Uh, Mm. And while I was watching, I kind of differentiated between scenes in a kind of like... I thought there were three different worlds in my mind. So one was real life, one was the show that they were producing and filming at that point, the TV series, and of course, uh, what's happening in Mima's head. And what I love about the movie is, of co- okay, there's three different worlds that we're exploring, and whenever an event happens in one world, It actually occurs in the next one. For example, we first see that whole, uh, what's it called, dissociative identity disorder thing happen in the show with with that main character. And then we find out at the end, Rumi has DID. And uh, actually, uh, well, in Mima's dream, or you can argue real life, that that's the whole thing I'm talking about. But in my mind, that was the dream. Uh, Mima gets run over by a a truck, I think, right? And then at the end, we see the whole Mima and the other avatar, maybe Rumi, maybe, you know, it's happening in Mima's head again thing. Also, there's a truck about to crash into them. I think that was amazing. You don't know which is which. I mean, you don't know what's real life, what's fantasy, the whole Bohemian Rhapsody shit. But, I mean, at the end of the day... (laughs) Uh, it always calls back to itself. I thought that was wonderful. I mean, whatever world you're in, you see a scene and you're like, okay, that happened before in another universe, kind of. So I just think that was wonderful. Yeah. And that's and that's the 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 mystery intention is, is that you don't know which of the worlds we're currently watching, right? And you can and, and once the scene's over, you kind of think maybe this was this, maybe this was that, or they some scenes they do reveal. But man, you should you should major in film, man. That was great. That was great. <laughs> that was great. You're right. Those are the three the three big pieces. I mean, I might minor yeah. in film. I'm a bit of a pussy to major in it <laughs> because I mean that <laughs> might lead down. <laughs> That's probably smart. Yeah. That's probably smart. But, but if to yeah, no, I, yeah. yeah, sorry to add one more thing. I mean, uh, I think yes. there is no clear explanation to this. I mean, uh, Hank kind of explained a good version of what happened, and I, I respect that. But I think in movies like this and Mulholland Drive, for example, the first time I watched that, I, I mean, I think it was a good film, but I needed an explanation, like I needed reading up on the movie. And there was this guy on the internet writing a whole review about what happened, and I was like, well, this might have happened according to you, but I think David, I mean, the superiority of Lynch movies is, you can never know. I mean, this is your explanation. That's not Lynch's explanation, and we will never know Lynch's explanation. And I think here it's the same with, okay, uh, Rumi kind of orchestrated it all and kind of... Uh, did the murders and I mean got in contact with the stalker creepo guy but at the same time 
Mima was always fucked in the head. I mean, she saw visions. I mean, she she saw, I mean, in the train kind of window or outside of her bed, and she saw that little, you know, floating version of herself. And that wasn't Rumi at all. That was herself turning mad. So that's also one way to look at it. That Rumi is not the mastermind we think she is. She is also suffering, but most of it does happen in Mima's head. So that's another explanation I thought. Yeah, Hank, uh, I, I know that I know that you're you know a fan of all different genres of literature, but we've talked about Russian literature before, which you know you, I can think of examples where you have this sort of uh, uh, I'll say unreliable narrator. And obviously, this film wasn't wasn't narrated, but this idea of you can't exactly trust what's presented at face value to you. Um, what does it? Did this film? I feel like this would be right up your alley. I feel like there's uh, other other sources of literature that kind of do the same sort of thing. This misdirection, and you're never really sure what happened. You're never really sure what the answer is. Did you see those those parallels too when you were watching it? Oh yeah, you know, like I, I have <clears throat> like my suspicions, uh, you know, about kind of like what the the real world events were to some extent, um, but. At the same time, you know, pretty much every scene we see something where it's pretty clearly not being interpreted the same way by everyone that's involved with it. Um, what jumps out to me uh, in particular when I say that is uh, when Mima is on set, like filming like the last scene of her TV show or movie or whatever, and uh, they're giving her like the, the psychiatric breakdown and they're using the names from her real life. You know, they're saying, like, the, the Mima character and stuff like that. And then they kind of, like, shift over to the other actors, and they're saying the names of the characters from the show. Um, I think that's, like, kind of a good illustration of, you know, like, a lot of what's shown going on, like, we see it kind of from Mima's perspective. We see her seeing these figures, these apparitions. Um, and they're pretty clearly, like not there for everyone else but it also makes you have to wonder like how much of the rest of it is a construction by her um and so yeah i think there's like definitely kind of an unreliable narration sort of thing where even though mima's not narrating it necessarily we're seeing kind of the perspective she has with her own illusions in it um so, yeah, I guess, you know, pretty much any scene in the movie you have to kind of take with a grain of salt, and I like that. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, uh, I mean, adding to this whole ambiguity argument, for example, uh, Keegan, I think it was you, said, like, I, I like a happy ending, or Hank, was it you, I think, one of you guys? Um, the whole yeah. Yeah. happy ending with Mima saying, yes, if, you, if we look at, take it at face value, if that's real life, Mima is happy to find out she's not the mad one. And, you know, like, I'm real, I'm not, like, an illusion, something like that, at the end, and then the film cuts to black. And, well, she is still mad. I mean, from our perspective, we did see her with, see all those illusions. And so she is mad, but at, she believed, she kind of puts all of that focus on to Rumi's illness and says, oh, it was all her then, but no, she was ill too. So we can never get that whole, uh, how can you say, the whole wrapping up. I mean, I think it, the movie intentionally doesn't allow you to do that. And, uh, yeah, like she compartmentalizes yeah. by, by, by 
kind of moving the psychosis over to Rumi, for sure. And I, I think to follow up on that, one of the reasons, I think if we had just had the sequence where she goes and she takes the flowers and she sits in her car and she takes off her glasses and affirms to herself, or reaffirms to herself that she is, like, I know who I am, I think that would be a little bit of a gray zone. But I think, like, so much of Mima's character arc is, like, she is always kind of self-conscious about her transition from being an idol back into, you know, into, into moving into acting. I think she, you know, a lot of being in the public eye from her perspective is like her relationship to the fans, how they respond to her. We see that in the opening scene where there's like a fight in the state or in the in the stadium and she just wants everyone to stop so she can have one last night song to go out on. Um, so I think like public opinion really matters to her. And I don't think she hears this interaction, but I think the key thing that we see in the end is when she passes by the two nurses and one of them goes like, oh my God, that's Mima, and I'm forgetting her last name, but she calls her first and last name, where throughout the rest of the movie, everyone that sees her calls her Mima-chan, which is like her persona, which is purely in the idol world. So I think when I saw that, I was like, oh, she's fully kind of transitioned out of her, like this, this angst that she had of moving from music to acting, and that like, you know, she affirms herself, but the world around her also kind of affirms that she's made that transition and this is who she is now both like her psychosis shifting to someone else but also like her career has moved on and she can kind of start doing that as well so i i think it was definitely not like a concrete evidence that it all had a nice bow but i definitely felt happy knowing that like i i think there's enough supporting evidence where i can believe that this character is happy in, in her world at least yeah, I, I think there's also some element there of uh, kind of reconciliation um, but with with kind of reality itself. Because I think, like like you were saying, part of her struggle is she's like moving out of the pop idol life. Maybe she still wants to be a pop idol. Maybe she wants to be taken seriously as as an actress, and that causes a lot of like internal disparity. I think that that kind of leads to a, a lot of what we see throughout the movie of you know like she's she's like hallucinating her pop idol self like clearly that's kind of her own problem it's it's kind of bred by this kind of a you know like break in her between an idol and an actress but then it's horribly exacerbated by the fact that we have Mr. Mimania who is impersonating her on his website at some point Rumi supposedly starts emailing Mr. Mimania also impersonating her so Within Mima, you know, there's Mima and then there's fantasy Mima. But then even in the real world, there are multiple people impersonating Mima. So there's kind of like multiple real and constructed personalities mm -hmm. of Mima. And I think in the end of the movie, depending on how much you believe of the events that happen, she's probably still not mentally well. She's, you know, maybe a bit too far gone for that. She's probably going to need help for the rest of her life. But <laughs> at least two of the people impersonating Mima have most likely stopped at that point which probably <laughs> allows her to reach some more reconciliation because even if she has that kind of like break between does she want to be an idol does she want to be an actress at least she doesn't have other people out in the world that are pretending to be her like saying thoughts and she's reading thoughts and trying to think did I say that at some point and forget it did you know am I not the real me is there another me out there that's saying that like at least that's been cut back and so I think you can at least assume that, you know, even if she's not telling everything exactly how it is, even if her perspective is flawed, um, it's become 
kind of closer to in focus with reality uh, by the end of the movie, just by virtue of some of the noise in the form of Mr. Mimania Rumi has been cut out. We, we can assume, I think, that Mima's room is no longer active, um, and that was not helping her mental state, things like that. Like, I think that the, the movie allows for, like, some sense of internal reconciliation where she's not being forced towards, like, kind of one way or another, and that's not causing, like, an internal strife. And this is a, a motif in a lot of art, right, where uh, an artist goes somewhat crazy um, due to the, you know, sometimes it's just the constraints of the art, whether it's a, a musical piece they have to learn and just putting so much of themselves into it causes them a break. And But in this case, you had this, this girl going through this artistic career as a public persona, and then you had two crazy people latch on to her. And they, they're, I think they were largely the source of all of her madness, you know, just by, by she was already going to be having some issues dealing with what she was dealing with. And then these people just were... Uh, in the straight loony bin and uh, really, really made it hard for her. Um, but I, I have another kind of motif or topic I wanted to bring up and, and see what you guys thought about it. So I, I don't, don't want to cut anybody off. There's any more thoughts about the madness in, in this film. I just quickly, if I could add, I, I, I thought what was, I actually just came up with this. I'm not going to act like this was on my mind. Uh, but when you look at the whole look, three different worlds kind of perspective, uh, for example, in the show, Mima's character is sexually assaulted, and then in what we assume is real life, or in Mima's head, we don't know that, but the stalker sexually assaults the real Mima, right? And so, which one influences which one? I mean, if both really happened, which kind of, where's the cause and effect relation? I mean, these two can't have happened at the same time, that means one is made up, or the, in the show, kind of Mima sees uh, the sexual assault scene happen and kind of internalizes that and kind of imagines that in real life. Or maybe we saw the DID whole identity disorder thing happen in the show. Well, maybe Mima made that up to kind of save herself at the end. So maybe that whole Rumi is crazy thing didn't happen. Maybe Mima still is crazy, but she kind of plopped it on to Rumi because she saw that in the show. So that's all. Where does it start? Where does it end thing? I mean, they all can't have happened at the same time. One has to be made up kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 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 And, and I think it's... <clears throat> I think that's the, the, the best part of this movie and the driving force of it is we're unsure. We're unsure which is real, which caused which, and those those questionings are, I think, is what is what drives most of the intrigue of the movie. Um, but I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up the, the sexual assault scenes because that was kind of the topic I wanted to bring up, which was um, sort of the topic of misogyny in general. And I think you could say, so I wanna, I'm interested to hear what you guys think, um, which is interesting because it's four guys talking about misogyny <laughs> in you know Japan. Um, but I, uh, I, I, I would say this film was a critique of misogyny in a lot of ways or about um, misogynistic traits in Japanese culture in the 90s and sort of misogyny and fandom um, while itself also being misogynistic. So that, that was kind of my my takeaway from it. What did, what did you guys think? I'll let whoever wants to whoever wants to jump in. So I, I actually had this in my notes as well, but I actually took a little bit of a different... T- I actually saw this as being a, a decent representation. One thing that, that came up in that is like, uh, the way that it treats 
uh, Mima's nudity because we get it, it's very common as she becomes an actress like you know it's very frequent that we get scenes where she's doing nude photo shoots or we get a pretty horrific fake rape scene followed like you know Denise said with a pretty scary somewhat realistic rape scene but we also get a lot of shots at her at home where she's bathing or she's just in her apartment and it it doesn't feel exploitative at all when it's when it's kind of in her world that she feels that she can kind of somewhat control i mean there's a scene where she's sitting in the bathtub hunched over obviously naked but it doesn't feel in any way sexualized and then we're getting super cuts of her doing her photo shoot which are obviously like hyper sexualized so i thought like the movie had a a good idea of of tracking what was within her control and what were the things that she wasn't you know obviously she seems to have some guilt about these things later when she is having her real real manic episode towards the end Uh, but i thought the movie was like barely respectful for her when it was when it was things that were more from her perspective if we're thinking about i guess the three uh you know events that we're following yeah i mean and just sort of the the way i kind of thought about it was obviously uh, <clears throat> i don't even want to call it her sexuality because we never see anything about her sexuality right we just see other people using her for whether it's their own sexual fantasies or uh uh using her as as a sexual object in art Um, and we get a little bit you're right we get a little bit of her reacting to having done these things where she's by herself and she screams of course I didn't want to do it you know and she's having these big fits Um, but I don't think we really explored any of that we just it was like accepted that this was a degrading thing that she did and that other people forced her to do but we never really dove into any of that i don't think Uh, you guys could have different opinions too obviously yeah i I guess the big thing for me in this movie especially with those things is um you know like obviously it's it's kind of a about the struggle that mima has to go through because of of uh you know the the various expectations based on put on her by her fans her agents things like that but uh she really has no agency in the film um, it, it really feels like at the at, during the whole movie, she's kind of at the the mercy of what her fans see her. She's at the mercy of Mr. Mimania's uh, kind of a manipulation of her public persona. She's at the mercy of the roles that are written for her or that her agents produce for her. There, there's even a scene early on where where her two agents, Rumi and the man, are discussing uh, like uh, if she should go into acting, if she should remain an idol. And uh, at some point, Rumi's like, yeah, but what about what Mima wants? And then it just cuts away. We never even hear it. Um, like, like, I don't think Mima says anything. Um, and so even though it's kind of like about her struggle, th- her struggle, she, she seems almost kind of passive in it, um, hmm. which I think kind of like would in some sense kind of undermine the message it's giving about like how, you know, like, it seems like she should have more agency. She should be like fully in control of, of what's going on. That seems kind of like the, the desired state of things. But we never really see any movement in that direction. She's always just kind of moving from scene to scene, doing uh, either what people tell her to do or kind of reacting to what has been done. Um, but, you know, she she doesn't seem like a real agent. She seems like a like a like a pawn almost in a sense. No, I mean, I agree with both of you guys. Uh, I mean, when you look at story, the whole movie, 
Mima doesn't actually make any decisions. I mean, she's kind of coerced into most things by Mr. Tadakoro, her other manager, and Rumi. They're kind of the, like, angel-devil figures, and she she kind of doesn't make many kind of decisions, even in the whole filming the sexual assault scene. They ask her, and she says, oh, I'm fine with it, but then we see her break down and say, of, of course I wasn't fine with it, but I didn't want to let down everyone, kind of saying, yeah, she has no control over her life. What I think was most interesting on this whole misogyny, uh, feminism kind of idea was the whole pop idol thing. We kind of mentioned this a while back too, but I mean, the whole like first half of the movie when she's trying to get out of that pop idol persona, everyone sees her as an idol only. We see everyone say, even the people in the film production crew, the director, the writer say, even the her own managers, they, they all say, well, uh, we were trying to get her out of that pop idol persona, but the whole world is pushing back. Her audience doesn't want her to be out of the pop idol persona. Nobody wants her to be more than just an object that they can look at on stage. She, they don't want her to have a personality. They don't want her to have any agency, like Hank says. And that, this is kind of the... This is going to be a weird comparison, but I kind of got Legally Blonde vibes in that movie... Elle Woods mm. is just, oh, you're the pretty girl, you don't need to do anything else, just stay as the pretty girl. And she has to actively fight that and be more than just the pretty girl. And here, kind of, well, Mima wants to be an actress, at least we think she wants to be an actress. And she kind of struggles towards that. But the moment she does anything out of what the fans want or anything out of the pop idol persona, she gets criticized, she gets stoned, basically. And I thought that was interesting. I love that we got Legally Blonde in here. I love that we're talking about very <laughs> complex, dark anime movies, and we're like, no, there's parallels <laughs> to Legally Blonde. You're totally you're totally right. And then you could even say that Legally Blonde represents, obviously, a character with more agency, and the whole story is her pushing back on what other people want her to do, whereas Mima doesn't. Mima gets sucked down into what everybody else wants her to do, and that allows other people, these stalkers or her manager, to put their version of her that they want her to be onto her, and and they just totally ignore who she actually is. And they can only do that because she's – I don't want to say she lets them do that. And that's not what I'm saying at all. But there's – her character does not really resist all of this stuff, right? And uh, that's the opposite of, of Legally Blonde, obviously. I guess – so, Taylor, just to – I guess one of the things I wanted to bring up then, I, I think the movie in and of itself, and I think, like, you know, the writers, the director, I don't think that the movie does – poor job and I don't think it does a bad job of representing Mima at all I think like what we talked about is all these kind of like within the movie right like all these pressures her not having her agency those are things that are from her world and I think the movie does kind of a flat or like you know kind of sober approach to that and I don't you know if anything it's it's kind of a like a condemnation of those societal things that push her into that and I think one of the things that's like important to look back on is there's like huge cultural differences right like you have 1990s, maybe even like it's portraying late 80s Japan uh, and women's role in it versus like, you know, early 2000s, the US, right, where we have, you know, a huge push lately for for women to have agency and for them to be able to choose, you know, high profile careers, if that's something that they want to do and open up those lanes for them, where I think Japan back in the day just might not have been there. So I think, you know, the movies just kind of sit back and observe the characters. But, you know, I think 
the big disparity just becomes, you know, the time and place. Yeah, and I would say uh, Japan is is still a very misogynistic culture, and um, you know, there's there's you can make right. It's that question of are we trying to depict things that are real in society? Or are we trying to depict stories that are outliers but positive outliers? And that's all you know, artistic questions, and I don't think there's anything to like condemn there. Um, but it is, you know, when you're when you're watching this movie and you have multiple rape scenes, some fictionalized, some real. I think these are important questions to talk about because those are some of the worst things that can happen, and we can't we can't just uh, say, oh, it's a product of the times. And I'm not, I know you're not saying that, yeah, yeah, yeah. but just I, I think it's I think it's 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 worth talking about those things because they are such serious issues. No, I mean the yeah, question sure. you bring up about yes, of course. In one sense, the film advocates for, doesn't advocate, but actually condemns the whole societal role that these pop idols and women in general have to uphold. <laughs> but while doing that, does it fall into the mistake of misogyny itself? There's the question you're bringing up, basically, isn't it? And that's mm-hmm. question, yeah. I mean, do, it's kind of... It, I, I don't think, I, this movie, I don't think, falls into that mistake... I didn't watch. Did you watch? Did you guys watch uh, *Irreversible* by Gaspar Noé? I was think. I didn't watch it, but I was reading reviews, and everyone was mad because there's like a seven-minute rape scene, and it's kind of the whole Gaspar Noé huge production type scene, but it's basically just sexual assault, and we just watch a woman suffering, and uh, it's like, do we have to show that much? I mean, you can make your point with much less. I mean, you don't have to make this a high art piece, basically. And I don't think this movie falls that much into that mistake. I mean, it does show it twice, but that's just because of the world is set in and we see everything twice. So, I don't know. I'm not sure. No, and I think I think that's that's the question. I don't think I'm sure either. But yeah, you know, is it obviously sexual assault is a real thing and a thing that impacts a lot of people. And so I think that makes it a reasonable thing to be depicted in art. But I don't want to say like indulging, like by showing so much of it, are we indulging it? But what is the purpose of showing so much of it in, in such detail? What are we trying to get from the audience by doing that? that, that that's kind of the question that I have. <clears throat> Yeah. And I, you know, I guess personally I fall on the, the side that I think while the specifically the first rape scene that's for the show, well, I guess it, it's framed as if it's for the show. Um, I think that one definitely falls in like it, it is a little gratuitous. I don't think it's seven minutes gratuitous, but it definitely serves to put us in the mental despair of Mima and kind of it helps us understand, you know, why such a heavy traumatic episode could be triggered right like i mean obviously there's all this other things layered on top but just i think that's probably one of the most gruesome things that we have to sit and just kind of idly watch so yeah i i agree but to your point right like if this was made from the female uh or from the perspective of a female director right would there be different choices made so i think it's it's a fair question cool well i guess you know we've been running a little bit long i think this has been a great discussion does anyone else have any other points you want to bring up? I think it's a movie that has a ton of stuff that we could dive into. I've talked too much, but one last point I wanted to make. I think somebody mentioned the soundtrack of the kind of uh, sound design of the film. I think it was amazing. I think, Hank, you said it reminded you of Akira. And uh, 
it the scary scenes i mean it wasn't a kind of scary movie in the kind of horror kind of uh oh my god jump scare sense but it was very creepy throughout and that kind of was managed by the whole you know distorted singing the heavy breathing that the soundtrack has while for example mima is running after her uh persona or that you know floating pop idol avatar that she has and i think the sound design has a big part in making us feel as tense as mima basically yeah i totally agree i think i think the sound design was interesting to me because it it wasn't grating per se like it wasn't like you heard it and you were trying to cover your ears but it was vaguely unpleasant in a very intentional way where it very much supported the tension of any given scene you know there, there there's like like it was easy enough to listen to but it also kind of made your your shoulders raise up you know there's like kind of like a lot of like high-pitched noises there's kind of like some dissonance there's the heavy breathing and like it very much you know even in relatively neutral scenes kind of gave you this feeling like oh boy, like something is just kind of vaguely amiss here. And I think that served the movie really well. Um, I think a lot of movies that try and do a similar thing uh, really kind of fall into a trap where they will take a soundtrack, they'll do something like very dissonant, they'll do like a lot of like tritones and very ugly noises. And it's just very like difficult to listen to and it's very obvious what they're doing um and this movie didn't fall into that at all like i, I feel like in terms of like like audio visual like it looked pretty it didn't sound ugly it was very like easy to take in despite the, the subject matter um and i think that serves the movie a lot better than just making it like a grating audio visual experience um so yeah i love the soundtrack yeah 100 yeah, percent terrifying all right well i think uh if you listen this long it seems uh all of us love this movie and it's kind of it's kind of interesting i know when we did black death uh we talked about how sometimes with the movies that we really like we can start honing in on some of the negative stuff but man i think you know if anything this discussion makes me want to watch the movie again i think there's like things i want to watch out for um and and get on a, a third watch this time so uh for denise we have a, a ritual here where at the end of every review We'll pass it around to each co-host, let them get some last-minute, you know, two, three-sentence, like, wrap-up on what they thought, and then an arbitrary rating system uh, that is something in-universe. So I'll give you some time, I'll put you at the end so you have something to think of, uh, and Hank will demonstrate what we do first. So Hank, why don't you wrap us up, start bringing us home, how'd you feel about this movie? Uh, so overall, loved it. Um, I said earlier on that I felt it was kind of like a part of a movement of, like, edgy adult 90s anime back that up um but i think it's actually kind of at the forefront of that movement i think that uh you know i i wish i had seen it earlier because i think i would even rank it higher than something like akira or ghosts in the shell um which i think have elements that surpass this movie uh but kind of coalesce into something less uh impactful uh for me at least um so anyway really like this movie even more than those other movies that i really quite like um and with that in mind, I think I would give it like 11 out of 12 uh, very cute apparitions. Yeah. <laughs> nice. All right, Taylor, how'd you feel? Yeah, I, um, 
This was a, a very interesting cinematic experience for me. So keep it coming. I like watching these kind of avant-garde anime films that I would not watch otherwise. I'm happy for kind of broaden my horizons. Um, I, uh, you know, it's not, I don't think I'm ever going to rewatch it, but I'm, I'm happy I saw it and sat through it and got to take it all in and ponder it. Um, so I'm going to give it nine out of 10 overly lit aquarium tanks. If you're an enthusiastic Aquarius, aquarium keeper at home, don't leave your light on as much as she did. That's not good for the fish. It's not good for the plants. You're going to get algae blooms. Don't do any of that. (laughs) Sweet. All right, Denise, did I give you enough time? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so perfect bloom. I think in my mind is what a perfect film should be. The only criticism we're giving it is something we're not that well you know we're not the spokesperson for basically uh the only thing we try to kind of maybe find some bad points in but we're not the judge of that so i couldn't find any faults uh i think it is a perfect blue film and i give it uh three out of three podcast hosts because one is me instead of hank Nice. All right. So, yeah, I don't think much more needs to be said from my end. Obviously, I recommended this movie, and I adore it. I think it's uh, just absolutely haunting. I think it's, it's you know, Ghost in the Shell and Akira are movies that we've been comparing it to. I think they have a lot of imagery that could stick with you, uh, right? They, they Scary things that they show on screen, but I think this is the kind of movie that the themes will stick with you for a long time and, and kind of make you uncomfortable and give you things to think about long after you've seen the movie, right? Like, I saw this two years ago, and I I still was thinking about it enough to recommend that we all watch it and talk about it here. Um, So if I had to give it a rating, I would give it 15 out of 15 dead goldfish. Uh, This is is absolutely as close to perfection as you're going to get. And I know I'm riding pretty close to Taylor's, but had to do it. I think they were. I think. I think they were. Uh, they were Danios. I think so. you're right. I don't think they were goldfish, but I. Not super into fish, so thank you. Even you idiot, you can't even <laughs> identify someone's pet fish. In an animated film. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, so we are going to be doing a review next week, um, and we're switching back to A-Weeks. I think we're actually going to do three or four straight weeks of A-Weeks because it's summer, baby. we got a bunch of good things coming out back to back to back. Um, I think we actually have Candyman coming up later in the month, but, you know, spoilers. This next review, we're going to be doing The Green Knight. Um, This is from David Lowry and starring Dev Patel. I have the blurb up here. For for what I hear is a good movie, this is an absolute trash blur, but a fantasy retelling of the medieval story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, I'm sure the movie itself will be much more interesting than that little tiny sentence, but uh, really looking forward to that. Again, it's getting a ton of good buzz. Uh, And again... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just want to chime in here. Um, Just everyone should go... uh, If you're going to see the movie... You should go read the poem that it's based on beforehand, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, it's it's a little bit dense because it was written in like the 14th century, um, but there are great translations out there, and it's not that long. I think it comes in at like 80 pages. It's 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 an epic poem. It's not like a, a short poem, but uh, it's it's you know just 
I think, in my opinion, like one of the coolest works in like the Arthurian cycles. Um, you know, it gets all of that like chivalric romance goodness in it, where there's just like a lot going on between like people's relationships with each other. There's a quest. There's you know like some like weird history thrown in. The the, the poem opens up talking about like the Trojan War and like the f the founding of Rome by Romulus, and then goes from there to like mythic Britain. Um, which is just like such a, like a such like an Arthurian thing to do, you know. They just present you with this huge epic scale. Anyway, totally worth reading. And my understanding is that uh, from what I've read, which I've tried to limit, um, my understanding is that the movie uh, is not exactly a faithful adaptation, but has like very interesting connections to that poem. And which translation would you recommend, Hank? Um, I like the translation by Patrick Stewart. Um, wow. But uh, there, there are others you can look up. The, the Patrick Stewart one, I think you have to get in hardcover. I don't know if it's available in PDF. Patrick Stewart, the actor, did a translation of this? No, no. Uh, Patrick Stewart, <laughs> uh, he's a, like an author and an artist. Uh, no, I'm sorry, just messing with you. <laughs> I know. Maybe, yeah, I wish. Maybe Sir yeah. Patrick Stewart could do the audiobook version of Patrick Stewart's translation. <laughs> <laughs> Well, cool. This is going to be exciting. Again, awesome. huge thanks to our guest, Denise. It's been great having you. Hopefully, we'll have you on in future episodes. And again, that's Letterboxed Out of Content. Letterboxed Out of Context, where you can find him on Instagram. Hilarious. And I just want to wrap this real quick. To honor our guest, I have a couple funny letterbox reviews of Perfect Blue. So I have three to go out on. <laughs> uh, one is from Emily Housel. She rated this four and a half stars out of five. She said, take a drink every time you're confused. <laughs> Another by Jonathan, who gave it five stars, who said, If you claim to understand this film perfectly on your first view, get off your ass and help cure cancer. <laughs> uh, and lastly, uh, a five-star review from Lily, who writes, Imagine your card declines at therapy, and they show you this. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Cool. cool. All right, everyone. Thanks. Yeah. This has been great. Thanks, Denise. Thanks, Thank you for having yeah. me, guys. Thanks, Denise. Thanks, awesome having you. It.